Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and today I'm talking to a woman with a hell of a story. Pauline Dakin spent her childhood on the run. Twice her mother uprooted her and her brother without warning, moving thousands of kilometers away from friends and family both times without an explanation. She was told never to tell anyone when they were going on vacation, not even friends. And there were other strange things too, things she couldn't understand, but her mother would say she'd explain when she was older. One day, years later, Pauline gets a phone call. It's her mom. She's ready to tell her everything. Only the truth is even stranger than fiction. It's become Dakin's first book, Run, Hide, Repeat, a memoir of a fugitive childhood. Here's her story. Pauline, you mentioned it at one point during the book, how you and your brother had an idea of what a normal family was like. And you had the sense that your family was, you know, very clearly not that. Uh, when did that realization come for you? Uh, I think it came the, after the first time we kind of disappeared and ran away from our lives. But uh, I, I don't think either one of us really had the language to talk about it in that way until after the second time that we had disappeared. Uh, so we'd gone from North Vancouver to Winnipeg and then Winnipeg to St. John, New Brunswick. And at that point, you know, we were a little bit older. And so, you know, we would kind of debrief in the family room and say, what is going on? I don't know what you think is going on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so to go back a little bit, uh, early years, you were in North Vancouver, mom and dad, you and your brother. What, what do you remember from that time? What was your, your dad like back then, your mom like back then, if you can picture them through the eyes of, of you know, how you were at that age? So I guess my earliest memories would have been, you know, living with mom and dad in a sort of nice upper middle class neighborhood in North Vancouver and dad worked and mom stayed at home. And I guess, you know, the the thing I, I knew there was tension. I felt tension in my home because my dad was alcoholic and he would come home drinking and he could be violent. And so my mom would sort of take us down to the family room to get us out of his way. Mm -hmm. um, so and I don't know at what, what point that seemed unusual to me. I, that was just what I lived with, so maybe it seemed completely normal, but I was aware of tension. But my dad, you know, was this gregarious, charming, happy guy, and he he found his children charming. He just wasn't that interested in, you know, hmm. active parenting, but, but he thought that we were awful cute. Uh, my mom was a very engaged parent. She was a very loving woman. And I can remember, you know, doing a lot of things with her and her reading to us and taking us on camping trips. And uh, yeah, so those are kind of the things that I recall from those early days. And then, of course, my parents uh, divorced. They separated uh, the year I started school and divorced when I was seven. And it was not long after that that the strange things in our lives started to happen. Yeah, so what was the start of that? The things happening where suddenly you, you can't really explain what's going on, whether it's picking up and going on a getaway in the middle of the week or, or going somewhere and not being able to tell your friends where you're going. What were those sorts of things? When did that start happening? Well, it started happening soon after that. The first thing was that we started going to church, which we'd never done before. And we went to this church and met this fellow named Stan Sears, who was the minister there. Mm -hmm. What I didn't know was that uh, for some time before that, my mom had uh, been going to him as a counselor. He worked as a counselor with Al-Anon, which is the support group for the families of alcoholics. Mm -hmm. And they had recommended that she see him because she was very depressed trying to leave this marriage. And I guess the counseling went quite well. And my mom actually ended up working at that church as a secretary for a period of time. And so... Stan and his family became friends with us and yeah. so we would we would do camping trips together we would have you know Easter dinner together but then you know every once in a while it started happening that you know you'd come home and you'd 
have to be rushed out the door because something was going on. One time I came home and mom was emptying everything from the fridge into a garbage bag. And I said, what's wrong? Oh, the fridge isn't working properly. Everything's gone bad. But, Mm -hmm. you know, there were all kinds of things in the fridge, jam and ketchup and mustard and so on that would not go bad quickly. (laughs) It it made no sense. So there there were just weird things. One time we came home and we were ushered into the bathroom and told to wash our feet in the bathtub and then had to put plastic bags on our feet to walk out of there. And, you know, what was that about? Oh, well, you know, the carpets have been cleaned, but there's some something, the cleaner, you don't want to get the cleaner on your feet. Well, yeah. and years later, there were other explanations for all of those things. But at the time, they just seemed so odd. Or, you know, that you would get up in the morning to go to school and it'd be, surprise, we're actually not going to school and work today. We're going to go bowling in a town two hours away. So, <laughs> so what did you make of that when when that was going on? I mean, it's it's odd, certainly, but but what did you think was going on? I honestly, I had no idea. I could not figure it out. Uh, later, I remember thinking, well, you know, it was not easy to be a single mom, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of conflict still going on legally. Every time my dad would figure out where we'd run away to, you know, then the lawyers would start, and there was a lot of conflict. So I, at some point, I thought. Maybe she was just desperately needing a break in the routine. But that just didn't jive with who she was in other ways because she really valued education. And the idea of skipping school to go bowling, just I didn't think of that that would be something that would fit with her outlook on <laughs> Yeah, so if those are kind of smaller things, the cleaning out the fridge and the, the surprise getaway to go bowling on a day, then all of a sudden the, you, you think you're going on vacation and it turns out you're moving to Winnipeg. All your stuff is still back home in North Vancouver. Your cat's back home and and your mom says to you, you know, don't tell anyone where we're going. What are you thinking then? And, and how about your brother? What's, what's going on? Yeah, so, well, and actually what happened was she didn't even tell us before before we left we just thought we were on vacation and then when we got to Winnipeg she told us we're not going home uh-huh. and I couldn't understand it and I was really upset and she couldn't explain it she just said I'm sorry I can't tell you I'll have to tell you when you're older but just you'll have to trust me it's important and I don't really remember my brother reacting very much at that age um, it was the next move that you know that he found difficult as I did yeah, because he was still, you know, fairly young at that stage. Um, but you know, it was not, there was just, it seemed hopeless. Like if you couldn't get an answer why, and there was no choice in the matter. So you just did your best to kind of pick up and move on and find new friends and settle into a new school again. And her answer, when you would ask if ever it would be, you know, I'll tell you when you're older or someday I'll explain more or less. Yeah. I'm sorry. I can't tell you why. Yeah. yeah. So this happens again. Uh, you, you pick up again uh, after you finally settled back into life in Winnipeg. And now you're on the move to New Brunswick. Uh, again, another totally new province. And I should also mention at this time, uh, when you're making these moves, that, that Stan and his wife uh, are also moving along the same time frame. Um, That's right. You talked about Stan a little bit. What, what was he like? Uh, I mean, you, you seemed to like him when you were younger and, um, and yeah. he seemed a really personable guy. Yeah, Stan was a really compelling person. And when he talked to you, he really looked at you and paid attention to you. And, you know, he was full of fun and mischief, which as kids we thought was really funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, that this, you know, older minister had such a great sense of humor. And he really became like a dad to us. You know, he would take my brother to baseball, his baseball games or his hockey games. Uh, When there was a father-daughter tea at my school, he took me to that. We were together for Christmases and other holidays and vacations camping. He taught me how to build a fire. He, you know, he was a a very warm, uh, supportive man. And when I was a teenager, really suffering, you know, after all the craziness of our lives, and I, you know, at one point had developed depression, and then at some point I developed anxiety, you know, he was one of my biggest supporters through that, along with my mom. So, you know, he was actually, in many ways, a very fine man. 
And meantime, your dad would have been back in North Vancouver still. Uh, you, you pay him visits a few times, right? Or he comes, I know you mentioned one time in the book, he comes to Winnipeg and, and visits you there. Uh, by the time you get out east, you, you decide uh, in your own active rebellion, you're going to go back to visit him for yeah. a summer. Uh, what's what's the relationship like uh, at that time between you and your dad and, and your mom and your dad, uh, what you're seeing there and, and what you think is going on? Well, my mom and dad had no contact except by, by letters or through lawyers. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'd had no contact with my dad for many years. And then, I, as you say, I decided to go visit him um, when I'm in my teens. Uh, and it, it was very strange, I have to say. By this time, he's remarried to a woman that I had met before we'd left Vancouver. And it was all fun time. So, you know, we would go out to fancy restaurants and we, you know, museums and galleries. And it was just all about entertaining me and having fun and buying me things. And it was just, you know, I was swept off my feet, uh, as I'm sure it was the intention. You know, my dad had money. My mom was broke. Yeah. So, yeah. So could you, could you, were you trying to piece together in your head, why am I being, you know, constantly taken away from my dad, moved another province away and another province away or? Yeah. Well, yeah. At some, yeah, my brother and I decided, you know, my mom was clearly very afraid of my dad and, mm-hmm. and he'd been abusive to her. And so it, my brother and I had at some point decided that we were running away from him and that we knew that she did not want us to have contact with him. And so we decided he must be the threat that she was so worried about. And certainly when I told her I was going to go out and visit him, she was horrified. Mm-hmm. Now, she to make it work because there was a legal agreement that said so, uh, even though, you know, it, it wasn't in effect in, in any meaningful way most of the time. So that we just decided that that's what it was about. And so I, when I would go to visit my dad, I would really kind of watch him and think, you know, what's so bad about you? You seem like a pretty friendly guy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) My dad was on the wagon at the time Mm -hmm. when I was visiting him. And so I didn't see a lot of things that my brother later saw when he would go out to visit. But I just, I couldn't really understand. And I just decided that maybe, you know, he was very different with my mother than he was with me. And so that's must have been what all the running was about. So this book starts, you're 23 years old, a journalist at the time working in New Brunswick, and you get a call from your mom saying, I'm ready to tell you everything. What's going through your head? I was very excited because, you know, my whole life had been this big question mark. What the heck is going on? Mm-hmm. We always knew there was something going on. It always seemed very dire. Uh, and so this was the moment where I was going to learn the truth. So I was excited, and she told me not to tell anybody that I was coming, uh-huh. which I very frustrating. <laughs> anyway, I made it. I made it there. Actually, I did tell one friend. I did say I was that my mom was going to talk to me about you know some of the mysteries in our life, uh-huh. and then of course once she told me, I went back to the friend who said what happened. I said, oh, it was just you know family stuff, nothing big. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I met her at a motel in rural New Brunswick. By this time, she was living in Halifax, Nova Scotia, uh, going to school. She'd gone back to school, and I was still in St. John, New Brunswick. So halfway, more or less, at this motel. And um, when the, well, the first thing was when I got we met at the gas station near the motel, and when right. I got in the car to give her a hug, she was just acting very strangely. And then she handed me a note and an envelope. And it said, don't say anything, take off your jewelry, put it in the envelope, I will explain, don't talk until we get where we're going. And uh, I, I, you know, I just thought, what is this? And, but I followed her instructions and I didn't say anything and we get to this motel and she unlocks the door and I don't know what's going to pop out of that door. (laughs) Yeah. And I walk in and I look around and then it's one of those motel rooms with an adjoining room and the door opens and there's Stan and the last I'd seen of Stan was when he and his wife were retiring to the west coast Mm -hmm. and I hadn't had any contact with him for a while and I was I burst into tears I just I'd missed him so much and I couldn't believe he was here and I was so confused Mm -hmm. (laughs) it was a scene (laughs) 
So when does it start coming out? When does the story uh, start coming out? Uh, what are they telling you? And, and what are the thoughts that are swirling in your head as you're hearing uh, the explanations for all these things that had happened over the past uh, decades of your life? Uh, well, it starts pretty much, you know, we make a cup of tea and then they start to tell me uh, that the reason that we'd been on the run those times was that we'd been running from the mafia. And, I, you know, thinking... What? Why would we be on the run from the mafia? Uh -huh. And then Stan starts to tell me this story about how um, he uh, he had counseled uh, a man who was alcoholic, who had been deeply involved in the mafia in Vancouver. And this man, when when the organized crime group that he was involved in found out that he'd gone for counseling, they assassinated him for breaking the code of silence assuming that he'd told all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And then they came after Stan because, of course, they felt that this guy had told Stan a bunch of things that he shouldn't know. So that this was why Stan was, you know, on the run. And I said, yeah, but what about us? Mm -hmm. And so the story was that, you know, when the, the disgruntled ex-wife, that my father was involved in the mafia, mm -hmm. and, and his disgruntled ex-wife suddenly starts to work with other guy who knows too much and suddenly they're you know tight friends uh that they assume that they're working together to sort of um share information or or somehow uh reveal information about them so you're hearing these explanations for things uh things that had happened earlier in your life like the like the fridge incident when you came home to your mom emptying the fridge uh like the carpet incident uh yeah. what and what are the yeah. stories you're hearing yeah, these are so they're saying, you know, there there is this effort to convince me of this, and and they're saying, do you remember the time, and and you know, those were some of the stories that they mentioned. And so, yeah, well, the, there wasn't anything wrong with the fridge. The fact was that we got word that somebody had tried to poison your mother, and so everything had to go. Um, and the time that you had to wash your feet again, somebody had tried to put a paralytic agent on the carpet in the house so that anybody walking on the carpet would absorb it through their skin and be paralyzed. And then they would come in and kidnap you. Uh -huh. or, uh, you know, the time that you went bowling in the middle of the week, we were on the run. We got word that somebody was coming after us and we had to run. And so then of course the next question is who's telling you this stuff? You got word. Mm -hmm. And, when they tell me that um, that we've been pre receiving protection from this kind of covert anti-organized crime task force and that in fact Stan has been working with them um, and which has sort of reinforced how, that he's a target because he's been actively working against the mafia. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the next part of it was that my mother that Stan had uh, sort of gone inside was the way he put it so that this task force ran these communities in remote parts of the country that were partly a prison system for people who were convicted by a military tribunal of organized crime activities. Uh, so they would be stuffed away in these prisons for life. But the, there were also communities uh, for people who had been affected um, and, and, you know, were on the run. Right. Like so, almost like a witness protection program kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And so my mother had decided that she wasn't going to run anymore and she was going to go inside. And oh, by the way, they had fallen in love uh, years before. Mm -hmm. And and Stan said that his wife, Sybil, had decided she did not want to go inside with him. And so they were, she was, Stan had set her up on, in a place on the West Coast and, and uh, he was, he and mom were now going to be together. And that was you know what they the reason that they were telling me this now is that mom was getting ready to go inside right and you're a journalist at the time you know at, at the start of your career i'm sure there's a, a healthy skepticism that you had built up sure. to this point uh but you're hearing this from your mom who is a woman who had built her life on honesty uh what yeah. are, what are the thoughts that are going back and forth in your head as you're hearing the story wanting to fact check it but but also thinking you know this is these are coming from the people i trust the most exactly well i mean I think two things, I mean, I, I was not completely convinced, but also I did feel terror. So mm -hmm. enough of me was convinced to be afraid in case it really was true. But when you have been brought up 
in an environment where strange things are happening, extreme things are happening, and somebody says, here's why, mm -hmm. there you do think, well, it was, why else would people do those crazy things that my family did? Why would people run away from their lives? Like, you know, maybe there's something to it. But also, as you say, you know, mom and Stan were both people, well, Stan was a minister, mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, they were both people who had very strong values. And for my mother, truth and trust were the, you know, the very top of the pile. And growing up, she would often say to me and my brother, look, if, if something bad happens, that's okay. But you have to be honest with me about it because you don't want to break trust. Because if you don't have trust, you don't have anything. So I just knew in my heart that she would not lie to me or mm -hmm. try to, you know, fool me. And, you know, Stan was, I mean, Stan was this pillar of the community. Uh, and I kept thinking, okay, what would they get out of this by lying? Why would they lie? And I just could never come up with a reason why they'd lie. Right. So, so in absence of another explanation, I mean, finally, you have, you have an explanation for all of the things, the strange things that had happened throughout your life. And there's a very compelling reason to, to want to go along with that and, and, to, and to put stock in that. Yeah, because... Well, I love these people, and I, I believe they care about me, so yeah, I guess I'm going to go along with it. <laughs> so how does that affect you in the weeks after hearing that? You're told all of a sudden you are a target of the mafia. You're not safe. Your mom's not safe. Stan isn't safe. Uh, you're told to put a tracking beacon on your car. You're given a, a radio so that you can contact this sort of shadowy government agency at any point if you're in danger. Uh, how does that affect you and, and being told that you can't tell anybody else about what's going on? It was a really dark time. So I went home. At the time, I was living with uh, a fellow I was engaged to marry. And I was working at this paper. And I couldn't tell anybody. Mm -hmm. I was told, if you tell anybody, you will be endangering them. So don't talk. And so I, I didn't. I didn't even tell the guy I was going to marry or any of my friends, which put a a big wall between me and them. So I felt incredibly isolated and I was very afraid. I, I remember, so I was told that there was, there were, you know, good guys uh, kind of watching me to make right. sure I was safe, that I had protection. Uh, but I just found that whole idea so creepy. And I, every time I walked out my door, I was looking over my shoulder to see if anybody was following me. And if, if they were, would they be a good guy or a bad guy? And what, you know, it was just, I became quite paranoid mm -hmm. uh, and I started, you know, I started isolating myself from people in, you know, ways that were not healthy, but I had nobody to talk to except my mother when she was around and we couldn't talk on the phone because of course you had to assume your phone line was bugged. Right. Oh so, yeah. It was a pretty awful time. And you're also told at this time that a lot of the people that you think you know, the people from back home, people that you grew up with, relatives, are actually doubles, doppelgangers who have added makeup or studied these people that you knew so well to mimic everything about them. You speak of an experience when you go back west for a wedding and are forced to be in a room with all these people. What was that experience like of, of um, having this in your mind and thinking these people aren't who they say they are? Well, this, and of course, this was the craziest part of the whole story, uh -huh. this idea of doubles. And, but, you know, Stan and mom would say, you know, we know this is crazy. This, we understand this sounds utterly insane, but here's what goes on and, you know, here's why and it's espionage and so on. And so, yeah, I really struggled with that. And then we, yeah, as you say, we go to this wedding, my brother's wedding. Mm-hmm. And there's my dad, who I've been told is actually in a prison in the in what they called the weird world, this sort of alternative world. They call it, they jokingly called it the weird world. Right. And so I'm told that my dad and my half brother and my mother's sister are all in have been in prison because of the their activities with organized crime. And and yet here they are at the wedding, and we've been warned. That they that doubles will be there, mm -hmm. uh, but the thing is, and the, you know, this is how insane the whole thing was. You were not sure whether the doubles were doubles put in place by our guys or put in place by the bad guys, right. because sometimes 
you know, if somebody was critical in some kind of an operation, I was told that, you know, they would have a backup for them and, and they would do plastic surgery and whatever. Um, yeah, because these people were so necessary in some, I don't know, scheme of some kind. Yeah. So that was, you know, utterly bizarre. Uh-huh. So you're at this wedding and, you know, your dad is there and other people are there that you, you've known for so long and you're looking at them for those those things that are so unique about them, uh, whether it's the, you know, the different uh, marks on somebody's face or their fingernails or like toenails or all these different things. Uh, yeah. yeah. What, what's, uh, what's that experience like of um, not knowing who's who and, and what to believe? Well, it's, it's incredibly surreal. <laughs> My mother was completely freaked out by it because, you know, she hadn't seen her sister in years and years and years. And, and Stan, uh, had told her that the, that her sister had been kind of co-opted by my dad to, you know, implicated in something and co-opted into the mob. Mm-hmm. And, and my mother hadn't seen her in years. And then she sees her for the first time, having thought of her as a double for a long time and looks at her feet, which are, you know, quite unique and says, how, how could they ever replicate Penny's feet? Yeah. I can't believe this. So she really was, freaking out as was I I mean I didn't I felt like as though these people knew that I knew they weren't them yeah <laughs> or that I didn't want if it was real I didn't want them to know that I knew they were doubles it was just the I felt wooden and I didn't know what to say or do and I acted very strangely <laughs> yeah yeah now also at this as this is going on uh, in 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 the weeks and months since you had that first uh, meeting in the motel room with Stan and your mom you're getting letters from people uh, people from your past uh, right they're yeah. writing to you from the inside and it's in their style or it's in their penmanship you're you're recognizing these cues from people and hearing from these people who are who are writing to you from the inside uh, can you tell me a bit about that too well, this is really one of the things that was that I guess convinced me was that I started receiving letters delivered by Stan. He would he would come in and out of the weird world, you know. And when he came out to visit my mother and me, um, he would have all these letters, and they were from people I had mostly known as a child, and some of them were family members, and some of them, you know, my godparents, for example. So all these people who had somehow been caught up in organized crime and imprisoned and then they had repented essentially and become good guys in prison and they were writing to apologize to me Mm -hmm. and you know writing to talk about oh I remember when you were you know this cute little blonde girl and we did this and we did that and and here are all these letters from people telling me things I know are true that I remember and their writing looks like other examples of their writing that I have from the past, uh-huh. cards or whatever. And I'm thinking, how would you know that stuff otherwise? Right. How, how could you know that? So, yes, those letters, and there were so many of them. That was the other thing. How could somebody, how could, if, it, if Stan was making it up, how could he have written all those letters? How could he have kept all these characters straight in his head? Um, to assume identities as letter writers, you know, I just, that was the thing that I think eventually kind of drew me in. So eventually there, there does come a point where you decide you're going to go inside. You know, Stan tells you that uh, they can have a home built for you in, in this uh, secret world, the weird world, uh, and, and you're going to live there for the rest of your life. What, what's that decision like? I mean, you're deciding to leave everything behind and put this blind faith in living in total isolation uh, in a, in this place where, you know, once you're in, you can't really leave. Yeah. I remember thinking, well, if all of this is true, then that's probably the best place for me because I think it would eventually kill you to be so paranoid and always afraid. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, Stan made it sound very attractive. He had work for me to do. I was going to do some writing work. I was going to get to travel between the community. He knew I loved to travel. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I could travel between the communities. They had, you know, private jets that 
communicated between the communities. Um, and, you know, I was going to rediscover all these relationships that I'd been ripped away from as a child, right? Mm -hmm. So there were certain attractions about it. But I remember thinking, I'm walking away from, you know, this guy I'm supposed to marry. I'm walking away from all my friends that I've made. Um, and this career that I'm just getting started on that I love so much. So, yeah, it was. Um, but then I remember thinking, well, you know, if it's not real, it won't happen anyway. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and then we got into this situation where we were ready to go and I so I sold I broke up with my boyfriend sold the house we'd been living in quit my job at the newspaper uh, put my everything in my car and moved to Halifax to be close to my mom so that when we were ready to go we were all leaving from Hal we were both leaving from Halifax together mm -hmm. uh, I got rid of all this stuff uh, uh, you know and then I get to Halifax and it's like we sit and we sit and we wait. And, oh, there have been threats. They say if you people disappear, um, you know, we're hearing intelligence that the, that the mob may have some sense you're getting ready to disappear. And that if you do, there will be all hell raining down on people around you. Like, you know, my brother who was mm -hmm. by this had moved out to Vancouver or my grandfather who was still alive on the West Coast. And so then the story was, well, you can't leave until we get all this sorted out. We're investigating. We're trying to find it, get to the roots of this threat. But in the meantime, you'll just have to stay. And nobody knew how long that would be. So, of course, by now, I'm running out of money. And so I look for work. But I can't take a job that's going to be, you know, a serious job because I could leave any minute. Uh -huh. <laughs> so it was living in this very strange limbo and it just kept happening and it went on and on and I started to think this is ridiculous and and there were also some other things that happened with Stan that made me look at him differently and say I don't I'm not sure I trust you I'm not sure I believe you oh yeah yeah so um, one time my mother something something he said to her didn't agree with something he had said earlier in terms of some story about the weird world. And she immediately jumped on him and said, wait a minute, you said such and so, and now you're saying that's not true. And she was really upset and she was, and she was not going to let him wiggle away. Mm -hmm. And she was drilling down on him. Did you lie to me? You know? And at that point he started to cry and he's, and, and so she was, completely taken aback and said, what, what? And he said, Michael, Michael. So Michael was his younger son mm -hmm. who, um, when we were living in St. John, had died. And the story was that he'd had an epileptic seizure while he was in the bathtub and right. drowned. Yeah. And, and so now he's, as my mother's attacking him about this, you know, inconsistency, He's crying and saying, Michael, Michael. And, you know, this immediately appeals to my mother's, you know, she was a very empathic person. And she loves and him. She loves him. And and she can't stand to see him crying and in pain. And she says, what about Michael? What about Michael? And he says, well, we found out that, in fact, it, it wasn't an accident. You know, somebody held him down in the tub and drowned him. Mm -hmm. And then immediately mom's, what mom was going after is out the window. And it's all about Stan and Michael and and so that that happened once and I thought oh I wonder if we're gonna come back to this thing that she wonders if he's lied about and right. we never do and then it happened another time months later where there was some inconsistency that my mom was trying to nail down and Stan got upset and started citing Michael again and the second time it happened was the time that I thought no something's wrong something's wrong and that was when I started thinking about how can I prove or disprove this whole story. Right. So that was the final straw where you decide you're going to test them and fake a break-in to see if you can spell it out yeah. very clearly uh, that Stan is, is making this up. Yeah. Very hard to prove something that is meant to be such a secret. Right. You know? And so how, what could I do? So, um, uh, yeah, I staged a break-in. And then I called my mother and I waited until a time that I knew Stan was around visiting her 
So then I called my mother and I said, my house has been broken into. What should I do? And she said, I'll talk to our friend and call you back. And of course, we're always assuming the lines are bugged. And so she calls me back a few minutes later and, oh, like I was so afraid to answer that phone. Uh And sure enough, she said, yes, there were people picked up outside your house. And so I had to go to her place to to find out about all of this and hear the details and yeah. the story. The story was that you know people who'd been following me had broken into the house looking for certain things and they'd been taking pictures of me and they found those pictures in their car and so on. So totally made up, which told me that the whole thing was a lie. Is, so that it, was, is your heartbeat like just pounding in your ears at this point as you're hearing this and and it's yeah. it's all just kind of crumbling away. Yeah, I just, I, I honestly couldn't even think straight as as I'm hearing this. I just, it was like an explosion in my head of, oh my God, all of these years, all of the running, all of the severed relationships, all for nothing, and why the hell would anybody pull this on us? And uh, so any, I didn't say anything at that point. It wasn't until uh, later when Stan and Mum came back to the city where I was, Uh, that I took my mom aside and tried to tell her that, you know, he was busted. Mm -hmm. And she was horrified, but not about that. She was horrified because now I didn't believe, which meant she thought she was scared that I would put myself in risky situations and maybe come to some kind of harm. Right. You were were compromised now and and you realized that she wasn't going to if if not right away, you you soon realized she wasn't going to change her mind on this. Yeah, it became... Uh, you know, we had always been so close and suddenly we were on opposite sides of this pretty vast chasm and I was trying to convince her that it was a lie and she was trying to convince me that it was the truth and it was very hard on a relationship. How about your relationship with your, your dad at this point? You're hearing for years that your dad is this uh, man or involved in organized crime. Uh, you suddenly to have that pulled away and, and realize that that was a fabrication. Um, you have all these relationships, not just with him, but with other people too, that you had uh, lost because of this. Um, yeah. what, what's yeah. the rebuilding process like in the time after that? Yeah. Well, shortly after that, um, I went to Vancouver and saw my dad. And I have to say, I was afraid. I mean, it's hard to sort of turn your thinking on a dime and then just proceed as though you never thought differently. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so I, you know, I struggled a little bit, but you know, I I saw my dad a number of times and uh, you know became more comfortable. And I mean, I didn't. It's not that I thought, oh God, you know, maybe he's really mafia. Although every once in a while, that would say, but what if it was true? And here you are in his car. Uh-huh. <laughs> It took me a long time to get past that, but eventually I did, and uh, I, you know, reestablished a relationship with my dad, and uh, I'm really happy about that. And he died um, in 2006, and by that time, you know, I'd been able to see quite a bit of him. Tell me about uh, your relationship with your mom as as that progressed. I mean, she ultimately, obviously, never went inside either. But as as the months continued to go on, and and she believed what she believed, and and you were you know, you knew what you knew, uh, but yeah. but as you were able to kind of regrow uh, those ties and and mend that uh, that strain. Mm. So it was very awkward for a long time. We were very kind of formal and polite to each other, but uh, it was hard. But we never let go. You know, sometimes I thought used to think it would be easier just not to ever see her, mm. uh, and or maybe it'd be easier for her never to see me. But that never happened, and we, you know, I think it. At the base of things, we still, you know, truly loved each other, and we were both in a lot of pain about, you know, how the disconnect that had happened. What really helped with that was when I had kids, and you know, we were both so excited about. And and Stan died. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was pregnant the first time, so you know, my mom was devastated uh, about that, and then I got pregnant. And so it became this pregnancy, this child became the thing we looked forward to together. And and when this baby came along, she loved this little girl so much. And, and it became this place that we could be in agreement that, you know, is where we put both put all our love. Um, 
and it be, just was this safe place to to do it. Um, so yeah, having children really helped a lot. She was a terrific grandmother. Um, loved my girls so much, but we never, you know, we never did fully come to terms. Mm -hmm. You know, she believed that story until the day she died. Mm -hmm. She lived with me for the last nine months of her life. And mostly it was great, but one night, you know, she tried to warn me, you know, I'm going to be gone, but please be careful. And I said, you know, I don't need to be careful any more than anybody else, mm -hmm. you know. And she she said to me, you know, if you really don't believe this, boy, you must hate me for what we did. And I said, no, no I've, I don't hate you. I've been really, really mad at you, but, you know, I love you. And... Um, so that was sort of how, where we left it. We just, you know, found some peace around it. Um, yeah. Probably the biggest unanswered question for a long time was why Why would Stan do something like this, right? For, for all these years, uh, why did he tell this story to you and your family? And, and why... Um, why him when he was such a, a, a well-respected guy in all other respects? People saw him as a man of integrity. I mean, you liked him. He was well-liked by, by just about everybody. Um, yeah. Somewhere along the way, you, you find uh, an explanation and that, that seems to fit a bit more. W what happened and, and where did that come about? I had actually uh, started writing about all of this. Uh, you know, initially as a way to kind of try and sort it out in my own mind what you know, happened to us hmm. uh, and also because my kids were getting older and I wanted to be able to tell them about this in a way that you know wasn't just black and white I didn't want them to be mad at their grandmother about it and so I wanted them to have a more kind of nuanced explanation about the story mm -hmm. so I'm writing about it and it was in the process of writing and doing research uh, you know, I was always doing research. What, you know, could he have been psychotic? Could he have had, I mean, he didn't have any symptoms of the kinds of mental illnesses that might result in that paranoid type of storytelling. Mm -hmm. He was high functioning in the community and respected and had a firm grip on reality in every other way. Mm -hmm. And so nothing, none of my reading ever made any sense. Like it never fit. I never could find the diagnosis that made sense until one day I was reading something in a medical journal that talked about delusional disorder. And I went, Oh my gosh, this is it. It was, it just perfectly fit. And it's a very poorly understood condition. It's, there's been so little research. Um, and mostly that's because these people don't think there's anything wrong with them. Mm -hmm. uh, they are, High fun generally high functioning uh, and you know live normal lives and appear normal to people around them unless you get pulled into their delusion and then maybe you know maybe you question but the fact that they are so normal in every other respect and don't have those sort of other symptoms of major mental illness um, really throws you off and they they don't look for help so they're not studied and most people would never even know about this uh, disorder, according to a couple of psychiatrists that I interviewed about it. So mm -hmm. I told them my story and they agreed with me that he was a, probably a pretty classic case of uh, a couple of different subtypes of delusional disorder. So he had, uh, you know, a paranoid type uh, of feeling that, you know, he was being chased or persecuted. So persecutory mm -hmm. and the other uh, subtype is grandiosity and so the that that uh, we saw that in you know his role in this in this secret world that he was he became a leader in this secret world and all the information that we got came through him and mm -hmm. so that was the grandiosity of part of it uh, but I think Stan was quite unusual in that he was so intelligent I think he was you know brilliant brilliant um, and because he was able to uh, sort of sustain the complexity of his delusion, and it was incredibly complex. Mm -hmm. you know, I haven't even touched on half the stories, you know, that you would have to, that he had to keep straight in his head in order to sustain this delusion. And except for those two times that I told you about, there were never any cracks in the story and the hundreds of characters in the story. 
so he was quite remarkable in that way. What has the process been like for you in reconciling with what what had been these years of your life where in one respect you could view them as, you know, these this is time that I lost. I was pulled away from my friends, I was pulled away from my home. I was, you know, up uprooted twice. Um what has that process been like for you of of um coming to terms with your story and um and accepting it or or where where have you found yourself along that uh path? You know, I think I expressed a lot of my anger about what happened during my teens and I was very rebellious and got into lots of trouble. Um but as an adult learning about delusional disorder it was as though weight was falling off me mm. um, because, you know, dragging around a lot of anger and resentment and uh, bad feelings for so many years, that, that's a lot to carry around and it's, you know, not healthy. Yeah. So suddenly to have the understanding that, yes, Stan fooled us all, uh, perpetrated the terrible hoax, but he didn't, it wasn't malevolent he didn't mean to hurt us right uh, we just got caught up in something he was going through right and it allowed me to forgive him and also my mom in a, you know in a more full way and i didn't have to be angry anymore and i you know i can feel very sad about it and i certainly do particularly for my mom who had such a hard life mm -hmm. um but I could let go of that terrible, terrible resentment. And, and also the constant questioning, what was that about? It was such a relief to know about that. Right, because also with Stan's story, I mean, he was constantly with these letters that he was writing. Uh, they were stories of redemption, of people going inside and, uh, and turning over a new leaf. You know, he called them lifers. Um, so it was, it was constantly, you know, the, the, it's, yeah, it, it, it wasn't... Um, of, of ill intent. It was done in a way of, of trying to, I guess, look after you in a different way, but, but being caught up along in that. Yeah. Here's the other side of things. How, how has it felt to you now? You had this story for years that you were told, never tell anybody, to be able to share that uh, oh. in such a, a public way and to be able to finally speak about, uh, about these things that for so long were, were totally taboo and, and told never to tell anybody about. Yeah. So, the, you know, there have been moments that it, the attention and interest in this story has felt a bit overwhelming, but overall I feel, I do feel like a new person. I do feel lighter. I do feel free because holding secrets is very hard on you. And, and when you have secrets, you can never fully be known by other people. You're always aware that you're holding something back. And so that, you know, it's a barrier in, in relationships. So I feel as though I have that freedom of now, you know, me, this is who I am. This is it, uh, which is a huge relief. You know, it's funny. We, we mentioned uh, this just before the, the interview started, but this this was not your first idea for what uh, a book was going to be. You, you had another idea at first. But uh, but somewhere along the way, uh, decided. Well, actually, maybe I could tell this story. Uh, to think now about how um, how people have taken an interest in your story and how it's how it's grown the way it has. What perspective have you gained from that? You know, it's been a fascinating process. I have to say. Um, so most uh, my my biggest takeaway is that most people are incredibly kind and supportive and understanding about how, you know, vulnerable little children get caught up in bad situations. Um, there have been some people uh, who've had a quite a, a violent response to it. You know, mm. they get really upset and angry and they, um, you know, kind of rant. And I'm thinking, wow, it's okay to, you know, I, I thought lots of people would read about my story and say, God, were you ever gullible or, you know, how stupid could you be to believe that stuff? Mm -hmm. I, and I prepared my kids for that. You know, people might say that it's okay. But what I wasn't prepared for was the anger, the people who are so angry at me for having believed it. And so something about this story really taps into something quite ugly. And I, mm. interestingly, 
in my head, I'm making a connection with Trump and what's going on in the U.S. Because most of these people who respond that way are Americans. Mm -hmm. I think there is something about, there's some deep issue about trust and this human thing of not ever wanting to be fooled. And for some people, it just feels very dangerous and scary to have been, that, that somebody could be so fooled. Right. It's it's something that uh, it immediately brings to mind the the cover of your book. There's a, a quote on there, something to the effect of like when fake news becomes life. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That tapping into that, that, that feeling. Any other thoughts from, uh, from what it's been like to put this to page and, um, and what, uh, what life looks like for you now? I, you know, I have come away with such a strong sense of, I've just finished writing an article for a magazine about uh, resilience. And, you know, whenever people, I started telling people my story, uh, and there weren't very many of them uh, for a long time, they would always say, God, how could you be so normal? I don't mm-hmm. understand. How did you go through that and come out normal? Whatever normal is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and it made me really curious about, you know, what is that thing about resilience? And I was doing some research on that and and in fact, one of the top resilience uh, researchers in the world is here at Dalhousie um, and interviewed him and some other experts. And you, and I've discovered and, and I feel this deeply to be true, that you find resilience in life. Uh, it's not some innate thing that we have inside of, uh, of us. Uh, it is the, the supports and the love that we are surrounded by. So, you know, it doesn't come from nowhere. And I, when I look back at my life and where did I find resilience, you know, even though my mother put us in very chaotic circumstances at the same time, and very ironically, she gave us the resilience to manage it because of how well she loved us. Hmm. She was a constant mother, a, a loving mother, supportive, and there was never a moment, and my brother says this all, all the time too, there was never a moment in our lives that we didn't feel loved and that we didn't feel like we were her priority. And so I believe that that love gives you that resilience to cope through a lot of things. Pauline, thank you so much for sharing your story. Thanks for your interest. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you're interested, you can pick up a copy of Pauline's book. It's called Run, Hide, Repeat. I read it in two days. It's pretty good. If you enjoyed the show, you can do me a favor, hit subscribe, leave a rating and a review, and tell someone else to give it a listen. If you want to keep in touch, there's a couple ways you can. You can find the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. You can also send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was A Story Untold. See you next time. <laughs>